there's no like lone wolf brand champion, right? There's like Wolverine is, is not the answer. You got to be the Avengers and hopefully have Tony Stark's, you know, <laughs> money backing you, right? Because, because brand, you know, is, is a, it is an investment and it tends to be a long-term investment. And I think it's easy for people to just see it as a kind of a top of funnel experience or, or something that's going to kind of hit top of funnel metrics. But the reality is brand really carries all the way through all of the, the important touch points around conversion, right? They're going to tie to loyalty metrics, which is retention. How many apps are founded by a former world champion? Actually, a current world champion. Welcome to Clever Tap Engage. My name is John Gutierrez. Today, we're chatting with the former CMO of one of Europe's fastest growing companies in a very unique vertical. That was founded by five-time world chess champion and grandmaster since the age of 13, Magnus Carlsen. And my name is Peggy Ann Saltz, and here we are shining a light, as always, on the retention marketers, the masters in the marketplace. And today we're chatting with Scott Dodson, until very recently, CMO at Ply Magnus, a company on a mission to define the future of chess. And before that, he was CMO at Hero Gaming, and before that, CPO at Linkfist, an Estonian AI-based language learning platform. So a lot of different experiences and a long track record at gaming companies and more. But he doesn't just love working at them, John. He also mentors them, right, for tech stars, other incubators around the world. In addition to that, he's an avid gamer. Who could guess? Nice. <laughs> nice. A live music fan, high-intensity individual with a functional fitness enthusiast as well. Scott, you cover all the bases, and we're happy to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. So pumped to have you. We have to start with Queen's Gambit. I just literally re-watched it like last week, binge-watched it in two nights. I love that show. It was such an epic Netflix series on such an unlikely topic, right? Chess, of course. What was the impact on your company? Yeah, huge. I mean, um, you know, really hard to measure in some ways, but uh, absolutely huge. I I was uh, not with the company when it came out. Uh, I joined afterwards. Um, but I think, you know, I did look a lot, dove into the metrics on it. I mean, if you just took a look at, say, you know, search results of chess, they went up about five to 10 times as a result of that and then settled into kind of a new norm, right? That was at least two or three times what they used to be. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know, it, it did things, I think a lot of people go, okay, sure, it brought a lot of users, but it, it, it did a, a fundamentally much more powerful thing, which is that it evolved the brand of chess, right? If you mm -hmm. think about what's the brand of something that's been around for a long time, you know, if you hear the word fashion or, or music, right? And you have like, you have one vision of classical music that, that implies a whole bunch of things you know, if you say, you know, alternative rock or EDM, that's a whole nother thing. And so I think Queen's Gambit evolved the brand of chess in such a way that it created an opening for really legions of brand enthusiasts that weren't brand enthusiasts before to, to step into chess. Uh, and then you, you know, you saw that in, in across a whole bunch of channels, um, streaming and, you know, esports and all that. That makes so much sense because if you think of the brand of chess in the past, I mean, might be old, <laughs> might be, you know, or a very, very tiny niche of hyper intellectual social misfits who, you know, became grandmasters at 13 or whatever, whatever the case might be, right? But how do you sustain that, that 
initial rush. I mean, the show's still out there. It's still, I, I just rewatched it last week, right? But how do you sustain, when you get an initial organic rush like that, how do you sustain that? You know, we had the advantage, I guess, as a company of having Magnus. And he was, you know, on the, the less painfully nerdy spectrum. <laughs> right <laughs> of chess grandmasters right there actually are quite a few you know very personable and, and charismatic people but he was kind of on that he had been he had worked with some brands before and and you know had a little bit of of that uh you know albeit kind of a certain nordic conservative style but but still he was he was accessible and, and to fans and so that helped and then at least for for play magnus it was a matter of of trying to build on that as quickly as we could and find ways to engage those new brand fans uh, in ways that made chess that perhaps wasn't the same as Queen's Gambit, but but brought the, some of the same values of, of it being kind of more fast paced and exciting and dramatic and things like that. And so the, I think the main thrust of the company was to build something called the Champions Chess Tour, where, you know, we really invested heavily in an eSport um, and just put a lot of value into the market. And, you know, the group owns like 10 different brands in the chess space. And one of the main properties was um, something called Chess24. And, and that was really a, a, a platform that was hungry for content. So the initial idea of doing this tour was really literally just to provide content for one of the one of the companies in the group. But then it really took on a life of its own. I mean, it was it was it was, you know, happy accident in the sense that many companies then expressed interest in being a part of that. And uh, and that became a, a big revenue driver and a big way to, to, again, accelerate the brand through partnerships with MasterCard and Puma and, uh, you know, a number of our other corporate sponsors. And a big reminder for marketers not to mail it in on something that looks totally ancillary and maybe unnecessary and, oh, shoot, I have to do that too, but it can turn into a big opportunity. Nice. Absolutely. We had to kind of innovate a little bit because chess in its classical form is is a very long and protracted exercise, you know, and, and so we, we tried to kind of move it from classical, let's say, to more EDM or, or rock or something like that so that it was it was rapid format. Right. So it was it was much more kind of engaging and watchable. And we and we brought in, you know, commentators and and had, you know, essentially the computers predicting moves that the players don't know about and the commentators can react to that. And and, you know, the, it can it can make a bunch of stories within the, within that that experience. Great storytelling in marketing, and it nailed some great brand opportunities as well, some great partnerships I'm hearing. So let's talk a little bit more about marketing something like chess, right? You've got your chess enthusiasts, people who are your core users, that's your core community, but you also want to bring it out to other people. You know, people like John and myself who said, hey, Queen's Gambit, pretty cool. I'm not a chess enthusiast, but it looks like something I would like to do. How do you go about engaging this audience of not quite enthusiasts, but potentially great users? I think for us, uh, it was trying to build an entertainment product, um, you know, rather than a play experience. You said you've watched Queen's Gambit twice now, John, but I bet you've spent a lot more time watching Queen's Gambit than you have playing chess in the recent past, or maybe not. Maybe you're maybe you're an avid chess. Player, I would say right? an infinity more time. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So so we've realized that for this audience, you know, maybe eventually they might some of them might find their way to, to playing the game. But again, if we could build a, a really compelling entertainment or content experience, maybe it'd be a way to you know marketers in general to relate to this. 
that people could actually engage in that and and get a lot of value out of that. And you know, again, it was it was somewhat driven by necessity because the two biggest players in the market were chess.com in the play space, which chess.com and Lee Chess. And, you know, we did have a play experience, but it, but it was dwarfed by those players. So it made a lot of sense for us to kind of strike out into this new territory and find some areas where these new fans weren't necessarily being served. That makes a ton of sense. Absolutely love that. And, and making an entertainment experience out of it. I mean, it, I never would have believed, Peggy, probably five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I'm not sure, that people would be more likely to watch other people play games than to actually play games. Then I saw my kids starting to watch people play Minecraft or watch people play some other game. And I'm going like, why don't you just play the game yourself? And, you know, there's something to watching experts. And I guess they could turn around and ask the same question. Why don't you just, you know, play football yourself rather than watching NFL or play, <laughs> play soccer or something like that, right? So it uh, makes a ton of sense. Let's talk about influencers. Um, Play Magazine had a very interesting marketing strategy around influencers, not just working with them, but empowering them to share knowledge in a new kind of marketplace. Can you talk about that? Unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I learned a lot, actually. I, I feel like I'm... I'm a practicing CMO, you know, like I, like a doctor has upsets of a practice. Like I'm always learning uh, and always trying to kind of improve myself. And I, I'd say that's really the gift that I got out of my Magnus was really um, looking at influencers in a much more holistic way. So I think about there's been this evolution in influencer marketing that started with, uh, you know, paid promotions, right? You go, oh, you've got audience. It seems like it matches with ours. Will you, will you promote this product? And I think you know that there was some 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 success out of that. And then the next evolution, which is I think where really Play Magnus did a very very good job, and so did the other players in the chess space, was was kind of um, you know co-opting, like almost like full sponsorships or um, takeovers or or even kind of bringing people on board as employees, right? So finding people who are who are already brand enthusiasts, creating content around. A chess, a chess in general, or your branded specifically, and then kind of elevating them and promoting them, and you know, so we we worked really hard with on a number of YouTube channels that were either owned or very, um, you know, very close collaborations uh, with with people like, of course, Magnus, but also people like Simon Williams, these other kind of grandmasters that had a, like a, a good following, and rather, you know. There's always kind of a mix of incentives for the influencer, but in many cases, these were not, you know, it wasn't about paying the influencer a lot of money. It was about providing them a rich source of content and a rich kind of network of other influencers to collaborate with, to create great stuff for their audience and build their audience. So now I think where, where we started to take it and where I would take it even more is to figure out a way and what I've kind of brought with me to, to you know, so if I unpack it, I'm going to pack it up and take it with me, uh, is, uh, is basically grassroots, right? Is, is figuring out how to take people who, who are already engaged with your brand and, and incentivize that at a, at a very bottoms up level. Um, so rather than kind of going out and, and finding, you know, the person with hundred K or a million or whatever, uh, followers, figuring out ways to incentivize the, the grassroots production and really giving permission with your brand to kind of let people really take the ball and run with it. 
uh, and I think you know you're seeing a lot of these kind of this, these kind of strategies now being very successful. People like Chipotle and and you know EA, these kind of creator squads, and I think some of the newer channels like TikTok particularly offer you know a lot of opportunity there. It's really interesting to hear you talk about influencers and how you've been activating them because we've been seeing that uh, percolate back into mass media, really. I mean, as you were talking about providing new opportunities for influencers and providing content for them, I had to think about NFL. Sorry, I'm bringing it up second mm -hmm. time here. It's just after Sunday that we're recording this, so I watched <laughs> like three games yesterday. So, I mean, like Eli and Peyton Manning now are commenting on games. I don't, I, I watched a bit of it, right? But they'll watch a game and they're commenting. You don't get the play by play you don't get the so-and-so passed it so-and-so so-and-so hit so, -and so you just get eli and peyton reacting to it and that turned out to be quite popular there's hundreds there's wow. potentially millions of people who watch just that that's an influencer model right because they have Great, insider yeah. insight and they have expertise and they have credibility and they're bringing their perspective as former nfl quarterbacks to this experience that you're watching pretty pretty interesting i think it's spot on and, and if you think about it it's, it's like it's one extra meta level right so we go from you know engaging the activity watching the activity to watching the watchers of the activity right <laughs> and and that was it was the same model we used i mean with the champions gestures we took you know grandmasters and people who could actually who were known by the fans and could actually or the true the, the hardcore fans and could actually have a, a really you know rich commentary on play that was going on and kind of you know help guide that experience for the viewer amazing peggy how there's so many layers to unpack to potentially how you can use influencers how you can use influencer marketing how you can provide stuff for influencers that they want and that can be a mutually beneficial arrangement and content at the center of that i mean i love what he said you know give them permission to go with the brand that was mm -hmm. really key for me there influencers are the influencers but you've got a founder and a co-founder that are influencers as well so you've got like this great growth loop of influencer marketing and everyone's influencing and giving permission to go wherever they want with the brand i mean that is rare that's the coolest uh evolution or the coolest version of a growth loop i've ever heard of Super impressed. I mean, it's one of the reasons I joined the company. Really, was one one of the other companies in the group that I didn't talk about, um, but uh, was Chessable. And you know, Chessable um, from a business model looks like Steam. So I don't know if you're familiar with the, mm -hmm. the video sure. platform Steam. So, so you know, the, there's a there's a really nice kind of engagement loop to Steam, which is at this point I've been a Steam customer for a long time, and I have you know my wish list. And and every now and then I'll get an email that's like, hey, that game you have on your wish list, it's 60% off or whatnot. And I go, yeah. wow, that's a, that's a great opportunity, right? That's a really valuable. I'm really glad that I was given that that piece of CRM, right? So so I go out and I and I buy that game. And then while I'm there, I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know about that game that came out. I'm gonna put that on my wish list and that on my wish list and that on my wish list. And and essentially, I've got this now this this kind of perpetual buying loop, right? Yep. Um, and and it, you know this is I'm gonna have to get on my soapbox for just a minute because um, being in you know smaller companies, say up to 250 people, is kind of mostly my my ballywick. A couple of bigger companies, but but you know there's always often we're talking about investors and investor relations, and it's and you know ARR is something that's kind of like the holy grail or one of the holy sure. grail metrics. But 
but you know, honestly, if you look at something like Steam, there's really no ARR in that. I mean, there's no there's no recurring revenue, very little. Right? There's a couple subscription products, but basically not. And neither is there with Chessable. But the LTVs in Chessable were over a thousand bucks a paying user, right? So, so like wow, th this idea that somebody yeah. would pay a thousand dollars on chess product, right, is kind of you know, wait a minute, you know, it's a free game, basically, right? Once you buy the board, that's it, right? Uh, no, because the content's so rich. And then now I'm going to kind of take it to where, what you were talking about, Peggy, which is, you know, now what's the content that people are most interested in buying, right? They're most interested in buying contents created by their, you know, the people that they're fans of, by Magnus, by these other grandmasters, by, you know, a woman grandmaster or an Indian grandmaster or the youngest grandmaster or or even not a grandmaster, but just somebody who makes incredibly compelling courses and is really, you know, extremely funny and, and engaging, right? And so here you have this, this exactly this loop that you're talking about, where essentially these, these, you know, the very players of the game take some time. And it used to be that they could only, you know, some of them would write a book and they'd make, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. it was really successful, 10 grand, 20 grand, whatever, you know. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they're buying houses, right? Because because basically we we made a conscious decision to really make sure that they were getting a large cut a much much bigger cut than they would get from a from a uh, a non-digital platform and essentially now they're motivated to promote that material so so it, it forms this really really nice a kind of a loop for for promoting their own courses but also for kind of bringing people back to the platform uh on chessable nice i'm just thinking about those houses john we, must, we should have been influencers in a different way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do want to dive into that just a bit more because what you're talking about is high LTV, but high LTV also comes because somehow or other you've created a journey that brings in highly valuable or potentially valuable players from the start. You're focused on something you call pre-segmentation. What is that? I think that that term came for me as a bit of a of a scrappy, scrappy marketer, where I realized that um, essentially, you know, ads that that actually tell people they sh they they're not your customer can actually be valuable. Uh, I mean, it can be valuable to your brand in general because it can really define what your brand is and what your brand's not. But it can also just be, you know, and it can be valuable to the people then that that see that and are your customer, and they go, ah, this is really for me, right? And it improves all those kind of downstream dream rates. But there's always kind of the fantasy about what you think your product is, and then there's actually who your product's for, or, or sometimes this happens, right? You know, Chessable is for a pretty serious chess player, right? It's not for a beginner. Right. It's or somebody who, you know, probably came in because they follow some grandmasters YouTube channel and that grandmaster started talking about this really cool chessable course that they made. Um, whereas the, the, the tour, the Champions Chess Tour, uh, was very much for a beginner. You didn't even know have to know how to play. Right. You could actually pick it up by by the way we purposely didn't use we made sure the announcers wouldn't use chess notation right it would never be like you know look they went e6 or whatever you know no it'd be like oh so they moved the look they moved the bishop all the way to the other side of the board and it's threatening the, the king now or whatever right you know and 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 it took it was very hard for them to kind of reorient around that but but again i think that paid a lot of dividends so so you know 
I mean, this was the, the good news was, as we figured out a way to find very different user segments that, that, that essentially resonated with very different products across the group. Now, the, the challenge, I think, is, you know, you have essentially a house of brands now. <laughs> you, you don't have a branded house, right? You, you, you know, what is the Play Magnus group? Well, it's a lot of things. It's 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 a core educational, you know, platform for for core users. It's an entertainment product over here. It's a set of apps for kind of younger players, where the where the you know you can play against the world champion at various ages. Um, it's a bunch of different different things, and that presents its its own challenges. Let's talk about. I don't know if I could call it the rising tide of NFTs because it may be actually kind of a lowering tide right now. It's still a big thing and Web3 is still a big thing and a movement here. You launched the sports world's first pure NFT trophy for the Champions Chess Tour Finals. Uh, what, talk about NFTs, how you feel about them right now, uh, what the opportunity might be and um, where you think they'll go. We found a good overlap between um, crypto, NFT, kind of Web3 companies and chess fans. So I think there was a really good fit. And, and so it was it was a very, I think, mutually beneficial thing for for us and for our, our you know, NFT and, and, and crypto partners. And it allowed us to do some fun things like the first NFT trophy and to really have some fun with it and make it, you know, a very, very cool visual and kind of animated thing. And, and we were able to move on it fairly early, which I think was a huge advantage because, you know, I think as, as you're alluding to, I, I, I'm a big fan of the Gartner hype curve, hype, you know, hype cycle. And I think NFTs have kind of come off that, that, that peak, uh, that hype peak and are now in the, you know, the trough of disillusionment and, and may eventually kind of, you know, climb their way back up to the plateau of productivity. So, um, for me, I think that, you know, just, just personally for a quick sec, I, I, I think the opportunity in web three is, is very much around trustful or trusted web three. So, um, you know, I think there was a lot of interest around crypto because it was this kind of separate system you could verify anonymously and, and you know, nobody really had to know what was going on. Unfortunately, I think the, the, the strongest use case for that is, is, is kind of crime, right? It's essentially, uh, you know, playing around with, with, with money. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the trusted crypto space. And, you know, I'm actually yeah, working with a couple of companies in that space around identity, you know, it, essentially being able to put people in control of their own information. I want to talk about being a growth focused CMO because that's what you are and that's what you've been. You've had several CMO roles, including gaming. Tell me what you think is the key to being a good CMO. Well, yeah, I, I dug up this quote recently, or I came across this quote. Uh, it was like Google and Deloitte basically surveyed, I think, a thousand board members across, across uh, you know, Fortune 500 or whatever companies. And, and basically their, their conclusion was the, was it like the 20th first century CMO is expected to be a, 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 a marketing miracle worker, uh, uh, an, you know, an alchemist who combines the classical art of branding um, with, you know, with data, data and measurement, the latest advances in data and measurement, all the while serving as kind of the connective tissue in the C-suite and, and being on top of all the changing landscape of digital technology and cultural trends and, you know, and shifting consumer expectations. And, um, you know, I mean, everybody, of course, 
has their own cross to bear. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's like the hardest job or anything like that, but it, it's challenging. Marketing is really high pressure. It's really high stakes. It's really high responsibility, right? You're essentially called on to or trusted or, or you earn trust over time to allocate significant portions of the company's budget. And if you're right, great, you build more trust and then it's kind of like, okay, now what's next? Now do it again. And if you're wrong, <laughs> then you erode trust and, you know, and you have a very, it's one of the shortest lifespans of any, <laughs> any seat level uh, higher, right? Um, so I, I'm not going to, you know, say that I've got certainly all the, all the secrets, but I think the first piece is, is, um, you know, understand your investment portfolio, understand and basically make a case for your investment portfolio. Say, look, you know, I know you need short term returns, but if I put 100% of my efforts on short term returns, then, you know, it's going to be really hard to continue to pull a rabbit out of my hat. So I need I need your buy in that we can invest in some of the more longer term initiatives that are going to produce the growth in, you know, three, four, six, eight quarters, not just the current and subsequent quarter. Um, so that's that's the first part and understanding kind of that that landscape. So you've got you kind of your your short term, you're always on channels that are, you know, that are kind of delivering for you. You've got kind of your experiments that get kind of a quick feedback loop. And then you've got to make some long term investments, which look like SEO. It looks like content marketing. It looks like brand, um, you know, and brand is unfortunately not something that you can kind of set and forget. You have to, I think, keep keep working, you know, and keep improving that and keep going out to your customers and making sure that your value is aligning, you know, that, that what, what your core value that you're delivering is what you're communicating in your brand. Uh, and then I'd say that the second piece is just over communicating. Um, you know, marketing is is it fools you because everything you do is so visible or, or, or at least appears visible to many people you kind of it's easy to assume that people know what you're doing and why you're doing it and uh and i think that you cannot take that for granted and you have to over communicate uh really both directions you know especially up upwards but but also downwards so that you know make sure your teams align i mean ideally your teams align but you you know but you really got to make sure that you're communicating with the rest of the c-suite and they're on board and you have to be a wizard, as you pointed out. <laughs> right. <laughs> and a data scientist. That's right. <laughs> and an alchemist. <laughs> an alchemist, a wizard, super successful, yeah. always the source of inspiration. That's not hard. That's not hard. <laughs> I want to wrap it up with a final question about what you have found to be insanely successful when it comes to building this brand. I think um, the number one secret to success is having buy-in and support. Uh, so you either get that out of the gate or you earn that, but that's absolutely critical. Um, and, and then I'd say, you know, kind of corollaries off of that, uh, are there's no like lone wolf brand champion, right? There's like Wolverine is, is not the answer. You gotta be the Avengers and hopefully have Tony Stark's, you know, <laughs> money backing you, right? Because, because brand, you know, is, is, a it is an investment and it tends to be a long-term investment. And I think it's easy for people to just see it as a kind of a top of funnel experience or, or something that's going to kind of hit top of funnel metrics. But the reality is brand really 
carries all the way through all of the, the important touch points around conversion, right? They're going to tie to loyalty metrics, which is retention, you know, and brand brand advertising can be a great way to kind of re-engage people. They're going to tie to advocacy. They're going to tie to all of these kind of growth metrics that are critical um, to kind of lead, you know, an organization around a growth path over the long term. I love it. I love it. You can't be Wolverine. You got to be the Avengers. You got to have Tony Stark's money. I mean, you can go to the board and say, where's Tony Stark's money? I mean, come on. You know? That's right. <laughs> God said I needed that. <laughs> That's the answer to everything. Tony Stark. Okay. Absolutely. Well, Scott, it has been great having you here. I have to say also a plus one on the influencer growth loop. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time. Really do appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. And for our audience, if you've been watching the video, hey, we also publish this in an audio podcast, which is easy to consume on the go, on the train, in the plane, wherever you are. And if you happen to be on the audio version, you know what? You can see us, which is amazing, incredible for some of you, I guess. Search for us on YouTube to chill, watch us whenever you want. This podcast is about finding the world's best marketers and getting their top tips. And we focus on major brands with big stories to tell. So if you fit the bill, DM John or me on Twitter or LinkedIn, and we'll set you up with a show of your own. Until then, this is Peggy Ann Saltz. And this is John Kutzier for Clever Tap Engage. <laughs>